Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Crisis Management, the podcast edition. I'm Alicia Sikirska. Throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, we've heard about the She Session and how women have been hit particularly hard by the pandemic. Statistics Canada released a report this week that found job losses due to COVID-19 have consistently been more severe for women than for men. On our live stream video program, Sean Spear from the Public Policy Forum and I talked about what kind of policy could fix this. Here's what Sean had to say. First of all, reopening the economy will be a, a big part of that. That's um, ultimately key to getting women in those industries and occupations back to work. But then I think the second thing is policymakers are going to have to monitor, you know, the level of consumer activity as the economy reopens. If there's any hesitation because of safety concerns or just uncertainty, you know, I think there there could be room for kind of targeted um, policy intervention to support those sectors. The UK government four or six months ago provided some tax relief for people who went out and, you know, ate at restaurants or purchased um, goods or services in local shops. You know, that may be something, I think some economists have talked, for instance, about um, a temporary freeze on the on the GST or the HST. Uh, You know, maybe something like that will be necessary in order to boost consumer activity in restaurants and and other shops that are disproportionately um, staffed by women. I, I just think it would be premature to make that decision until we have a sense of how people are going to behave uh, once the economy is reopened. Right. So do you think there's a chance that uh, having the economy just firing on all cylinders, that, that you, we may not actually need to look at different policy tools to, to encourage that or um, that, that, that it'll be enough? Uh, yeah, I think the short answer is yes. Uh, we don't know that, but you know, given people's balance sheets, and I think just given the you know how all of us are cooped up, I do think you're going to see people spill out into the economy and you know want to spend money in in these types of um, service-based um, industries. I would just make one point though, Alicia. That's a different question than are there broader things that we need to do over the long term to help uh, women participation in, in the economy. You know, the, the Trudeau government has ambitious plans around childcare, which aren't going to kind of solve the immediate problem of female participation in the economy, but they should help over the long term. So, you know, my, I guess my answer would be, let's wait to see if we need to do anything in the short term to try to support female participation in the labor force, but let's not take our eye off the ball of these kind of longer term steps that are very much needed and broadly supported um, you, you know, that that are independent of the pandemic in a way, um, but obviously have been only reinforced and exacerbated um, by the experience of the pandemic. And when we talk about those long term policy goals and ambitions, we're talking about childcare, right? That's that's kind of the key to all this. I think that's a big one um, for sure. Um, but I, I think, you know, there are other things like, you know, ongoing interest and you know, because one of the reasons that the, the, this has been, um, been the recession has been so um, detrimental to women is the nature of the sectors they work in. You know, so there's ongoing interest in trying to support and encourage women to 
enter other fields, whether it's STEM or the skilled trades or other occupations. So I, I think it's primarily childcare, but I do think it's a broader range of, of policies to try to push back against whether it's discrimination or historical norms or whatever um, that tend to push women into certain occupations and, and, and not others. Okay, so that was our conversation from the live streamed show. After we wrapped, Sean and I wanted to dig a little deeper into how the pandemic has played out for women, particularly those working in the service sector, which, as we've mentioned, has been hit especially hard by the pandemic. I wanted to know how we can encourage women's participation in other fields. Here's what Sean had to say. Well, it's, it's worth observing, Alicia, that um, you know, the, the history of, of female participation in the labor force isn't that long. Um, in, you know, it's, it's only been a few decades that we've seen um, you know, increasing participation of women and, and, and kind of growing social norms around female participation. And, um, and so I'd be a bit reluctant to make kind of judgments at this stage of, about where and how women are going to participate. Obviously, when they initially entered the workforce, there were um, a combination of social norms and in some cases outright discrimination that, um, you know, I think uh, pushed them into certain occupations or certain sectors. The really exciting thing, though, Alicia, is that, you know, in, in recent years, we've seen you know, far higher rates of women um, in post-secondary education. In many cases, they're outstripping men overall, but also in some key fields. So, I think this story is an ongoing one. And you know, it's not to say there isn't a role for public policy in different areas to address some of the obstacles or barriers that may preclude women from participating in certain occupations or at certain executive levels. But I, I actually think that the story here is really positive and we're going to see you know, a, a future in which you know, the range of opportunities available to women are quite significant. And I think that the kind of canary in the coal mine in that regard is just the really strong performance of women when it comes to um, post-secondary education in, in general and, and post-secondary and advanced degree credentials in, in particular. In a lot of ways, they're pulling away from men, and ostensibly that should over time manifest itself in the labor market. So you expect that we'll see in perhaps years down the road, those women graduate, get into these careers and, and represent more of the workforce than we're seeing right now. Yeah, I think that's right. It's, again, it's not to say that there aren't steps that policymakers can take now um, to address some of the barriers that preclude um, female participation in, in, in different industries or different occupations or at different um, senior levels. You know, we've talked previously about the importance of uh, access to childcare. We've talked about, um, you know, different approaches to build kind of mentorship and support amongst women participating in, in the workforce. But I really do think that, um, you know, the, the long-term trajectory um, is a really positive one. Um, and I would say that's particularly the case in Canada, where for the better part of the past decade or so, women are outperforming men in post-secondary generally, but also in a lot of key fields. I mean, I mean, I mean in law, medicine, elsewhere, um, we, we see more women in those um, post-secondary programs than we see men. So I, I think, you know, we have a long way to go, of course, and I don't diminish in any way the potential for discrimination or just a kind of general social framework around um, some of these issues. But I, I think we have a really kind of positive story to tell. And, and I, I think that 
future women are going to be kind of standing on the shoulders of the progress that have been made by uh, women over the past um, 25 or 30 years. But as you mentioned on the show, that women have been working in certain fields and ones that have been really impacted by the pandemic. Uh, One of them is actually grocery retail. There was a report that came out this week from the Brookfield Institute for Innovation and Entrepreneurship, and it found, I mean, of the roughly 200,000 people that work in grocery retail in Ontario, it was an Ontario-specific report, 63% are women. And this report looked at kind of the impact of COVID-19 on grocery retail and workers. And it found that grocery stores are now actually hiring more people to not only work in store, but to actually help out with e-commerce operations that, you know, concerns about automation uh, taking over in grocery stores may have been a bit exaggerated. But there are some concerns about job quality and low wages when it comes to these jobs. So, Sean, when you look at this report and, and the concerns about that quality of work, I guess, are you surprised by that? Not really. Um, you, you know, we've been witnessing, Alicia, you know, quite apart from the question of um, male or female participation in the labor force, just I'm speaking generally now, we've observed over the past quarter century or so a phenomenon that's sometimes described as job polarization. So uh, we're increasingly seeing what's sometimes described as a U-shaped labor market where there's a, a lot of low-skilled jobs and a lot of high-skilled jobs, um, but a decline in the relative share of of mid-skill employment. And there are various factors behind that, Alicia, including the decline of manufacturing, you know, the role of outsourcing, uh, automation and technological adoption. But the point is, we don't sort of have this kind of egalitarian uh, labor market where you have a lot of people clustered in the middle. We have a lot of people who are doing really well and a lot of people who aren't doing as well. And, you know, the service industry Um, particularly fields like, or occupations rather, like grocery store clerk would be clustered in that um, low-skilled category. So I I think the big question for policymakers going forward is if we aren't going to have that um, conventional, mid-skilled, median worker labor market demand that we've had in the past, how do we pull people who are at the kind of low-skill end of the spectrum and pull them and indeed pull their occupations into the middle. In effect, how do we create a middle class in a 21st century service economy? I think it's um, quite seriously, um, Alicia, the most important public policy question facing um, our country and, and advanced economies. And, you know, I, I, we can't resolve it here on the podcast today, but I think it's going to involve a combination of new labor standards, including possibly um, a role for minimum wages. Um, But I think a big part of it actually is going to require um, encouraging these firms to invest more in technology because we know that technological adoption drives productivity and productivity um, drives wages. So how do we turn, you know, quote unquote, low skilled jobs into increasingly um, higher skilled jobs? That's um, that's fundamental or otherwise we're going to have a kind of bifurcation in our society, both in terms of. Um, job precarity and workforce experience, but also um, income. And we've seen elsewhere what happens uh, when societies start to bifurcate along those lines. It leads to populism and unrest and a decline in social cohesion. So I, I really do think that this is a, a fundamental issue that sort of transcends, you know, how different people or, or um, different, um, you know, men or women are participating. This is this is fundamental for our country. 
Mm-hmm. It's definitely something too that was highlighted, I think, even through the pandemic, as you saw the people that were able to work from home and the people that had to go into work and how it impacted people in different ways. Through the pandemic, we have also seen these workers highlighted as as frontline workers. And we saw, you know, the grocery retailers offer to pay increases around $2 per hour. But you'll recall that those were removed. Um, but at the same time, companies were seeking record profits. So how do the companies look at this, especially when they're thinking about margins and, you know, it, people don't necessarily like to hear it, but it does cost a lot of money to get the food on those shelves. Um, grocery store margins are not as high as people necessarily think. How, how do businesses approach this and, and think about this? Yeah, just a lot of insight there, Alicia. I mean, maybe just to begin, you know, one thing your your comments get at is um, how we've come to kind of conceptualize, quote, essential workers and non-essential workers. You know, people like me and you sort of working from home, doing podcasts and these sorts of things, you know, have been characterized as non-essential and our lives have been mostly unaffected by the pandemic, at least our professional lives. Um quote unquote, essential workers, people who've been put on the front lines, oftentimes at great risk to themselves and their family, are commonly in roles that are uh, outside of a pandemic, not treated as essential that are, you know, and that's reflected um, in amongst other things, typically lower pay. So, you know, one hopes that one of the consequences of the pandemic is that we collectively come to place greater value on these people who, in a moment of crisis, we discovered how actually essential they were, and in some ways, how superfluous the rest of us are. I, I live at, uh, sometimes, um, Alicia, in New York City, and I often joke only partly facetiously, the city could do with, you know, a few dozen fewer hedge fund managers, but it, it couldn't last very long with fewer garbage workers. Um, and, you know, that sort of gets at this, um, you know, this idea of essential versus non-essential. So, I mean, at a fundamental level, I one hopes that we have long memories when it comes to you know, these people who, you know, stepped up and played such a crucial role um, in a moment of crisis. And then the, I guess then the broader question is, you know, what's the relative role of public policy? What's the relative role of firms um, to recognize um, their essential nature going forward in terms of higher pay, better benefits, more stability? These are all things that I think are going to be kind of fundamentally important. You know, and I would just say one final thing. A big part of this, Alicia, is the transition from a goods producing economy to a service based economy. You know, it wasn't that long ago we used to make a lot of things and we had a lot of people working in sectors that made things in an economy that increasingly is service based. um, You know, we we need to make sure that these workers in a service based economy that are supporting the rest of us um, are treated with dignity, respect and, and, and value. Yeah, definitely. Sean, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Alicia. That's all for today. You can find the latest video episodes of Crisis Management on the Yahoo Finance Canada website. If you'd like to hear more of the exclusive content in this podcast, make sure you subscribe. Thanks for listening. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. 
Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.